we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke 16. And this should be familiar to us. This is what it says. It says, the law of Moses and the revelation of the prophets have prepared you for the arrival of the kingdom announced by John. And since that time, the wonderful news of God's kingdom is being preached and people's hearts burn with extreme passion to receive it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. You are good. You are good, good God. And we know as, as we've been uh, digging into your scripture, Lord, in this series that um, everything about you is good. So reveal your truth to us this morning. Speak to our spirit, man, and let us not leave this place the same as a result of connecting and hearing uh, your word this morning. Thank you. Your name we pray. Amen. And amen. All right. Okay, so many people, and you've prob- you're probably part of this, maybe not, but probably, most people assume that there's some sort of universal code of conduct that we ought to ascribe to. And this code of conduct is basically reflected in the laws and the customs of every nation of the world. And pretty much every ancient civilization is far back that as we can go. It's a kind of, it's a, kind of a set of universal oughts. We ought to, to which that we hold. And sometimes we hold ourselves to them. We sometimes we hold ourselves accountable. Like, you know, if, if you see a, a couple come in and uh, they're having a hard time, maybe, right, you should get up and help them or even give them your seat, right? You know, I ought to do that. Somewhere, you know, outside of you, there's a sense of I ought to, or I, you know, I really ought to apologize. I don't want to apologize. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong, but I ought to. I ought to apologize. Or maybe you're tempted to do something that you know, ultimately hurts somebody else, and there's something inside that's like, I ought not to do that. And so there's this kind of ought that sits outside of us, and we know that it doesn't originate inside of us, because if it originated inside of us, you know, we would just tell it to be quiet, uh, we would just move on and we would change it. Uh, but it kind of sits out there, and it informs our conscience, and sometimes it condemns us, and sometimes it encourages us to do the right thing. And so sometimes we hold ourselves accountable to this universal sense of ought, but we always hold other people accountable, right? Um, Even if you don't think that such a thing as universal oughts exist, the truth is you hold other people accountable to these oughts, even when you sort of negate them in your own experience. So I mean, think about this, liars don't like being lied to, right? I mean, a a liar may say, it's okay if I lie because, you know, I need to get my way and it's part of my survival instinct, but whoa, 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 you cannot lie to me. (laughs) That somehow in those moments, uh, the liars reach out and grab that external thing and say, I apply it to you. Thieves don't like to be stolen from. If, If someone breaks into their house, they don't go, oh, well, that's just how the world works. Right? No, they're angry. They might even call the police that someone broke into their house, right? Cheaters don't like to be cheated. They really don't. And so, again, there's this kind of universal ought that kind of sits out there and we grab it when it's convenient. And sometimes, you know, we ignore it personally. But here's the hypocrisy 
that both believers and non-believers share, the kind of, this kind of levels the playing field a little bit, is we can't help ourselves. We cannot stop holding others accountable to, to an external standard that we sometimes ignore ourselves. And so we, we just can't help it. We kind of just silence our conscience and, and, and get through doing the wrong thing ourselves. But when somebody else does the same thing to us, we even reach out there and grab that thing. And this dynamic um, that kind of condemns all of us, it underscores why the arrival of Jesus was such good news. It was such good news that ultimately it moved the needle. It was such good news that people were leaning in to hear it. And as we said the last time, that we're together. Um, some people resist Christianity, and you may be one of those people, which I, I understand. I mean, I, I, I don't judge you a bit. A lot of people, their big question as it relates to Christianity is, is it true? And so, um, you know, but for more and more people, the question is different, especially in our day, in our culture. The question now for more and more people is, is it good? Is Christianity even good? Um, we have generations that are asking this question. They see Christianity as portrayed um, in our culture and they don't like it. And um, kids that are raised in the church are turning away and saying, you know, I don't know if it's good anymore. I don't know if Christianity is good for society. I don't know if Christianity is good for culture. I don't know if it's even good for me. And so maybe that's your question if you're watching, if you're here, if you're online. And, and that's why we're talking about it. And so, but here's the thing. And isn't this true? We talked about this last week. When you hear news that's not good, you hope it's not true, right? And when you hear news that is good, you hope that it is true. And the amazing thing is when the birth of Jesus was first announced, it was announced as good news of great joy. And this is the part that we can, um, can't even begin to understand how unusual this was. It was for all people. And the reason that this is so unusual isn't, isn't that true, you know, generally speaking, good news for one person is bad news for somebody else. That that's, happens a lot of times, or bad news for somebody else is good news. And so the announcement of Jesus was good news of great joy for everybody. And, and, and the world was so divided, it would have been hard for anybody in that culture to even imagine that there's something that's so good that it's gonna benefit everybody because generally the good news benefits one group and it punishes or undermines the integrity or the success of another group. And so seriously, all people where which brings us to the question that uh, we're gonna talk a, a lot about next week, so don't miss that. But if, if the birth of Jesus really is good news of great joy for all people, why is there so much resistance to it? Because again, when we hear something that we think is good or we're convinced is good, we want it to be true. We hope that it's true. And we look for reasons to believe that it's true. So if the birth of Jesus and the coming of Jesus to our planet is goodness, why all the resistance in our culture? Why doesn't everybody lean in? And one of the problems is that the original version has gotten so distanced from our cultural and our contemporary version. When Jesus first showed up and when Jesus first stepped on the planet, people leaned in. In fact, the original version of Jesus' message and the original version of the Jesus story was actually called the gospel. It wasn't called, you know, the Bible. It wasn't, it wasn't called the story of Jesus. It was called the gospel, which is two old English words put together, which means good story. And the best title that they could come up with was Yuan Gileon in the Greek, or the good news, or the gospel is how they say it. And so the good news of Jesus Christ was 
good news. It was such good news. It caught on sandwiched between kind of the Roman Empire that eventually made it legal in the Jewish temple, which was threatened by it. But somehow it still caught on because so many people leaned in again, because again, when you hear something that sounds good, you hope it's true. And uh, the gospel, the original gospel, the original message the Jewish scripture or the Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, that, that the Hebrew scriptures were, were proclaimed until John the Baptist. And the Hebrew scriptures were very good news for the Hebrew people, especially the ancient Hebrew people, but they weren't good news for everybody. He said that the law and the prophets had been proclaimed until John the Baptist, but when John the Baptist came and announced that God was about to do something new, and when Jesus steps onto the pages of history as a man, things changed. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, but since that time, here it is, the good news of the kingdom of God, that, 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 that God is about to do something for everybody in the world. The good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And look at this, Jesus says, look around. Everybody, everybody, everyone who hears it, everyone who understands it, everybody who senses that God is about to do something in the world uh, for everyone, everyone is leaning in, everybody is moving toward, everybody is focusing their way into it. Everywhere Jesus went um, were crowds upon crowds upon crowds, which brings us to this tension. Um, if the life and if the message of Jesus doesn't strike you as good news, perhaps you've never heard the original news. Uh, if the life and the message of his teaching doesn't strike you as good news of great joy, you may not believe it's true. But maybe there's something in you that just says, I don't believe it's true, but wow, wouldn't it be great if it was? Wouldn't it be great if it was true? If there's not something in you that would just lean forward and say, you know what, I think it's a fairy tale at this point. I don't know if we can trust this, but wow, wouldn't it be amazing? If the message of Jesus doesn't strike you as something that you would want to be true, perhaps you've never heard or perhaps you've never understood the original version. So the good news of great joy for all people version, that's the version I'm talking about because the original version was so extraordinarily compelling and it was so extraordinarily worth telling. And Luke tells us that many people endeavored to give us an orderly account of the life and the teachings of Jesus. It was that good. Everybody was writing about this guy. And so now one of the things that makes the good news so good is that Jesus, with his message, he basically levels the playing field. And so that the message of Jesus was understood as a disturbingly but appropriately humble reminder that we aren't so good, right? In fact, it was this message that disturbed the people that thought they were so good. And it's the very part of his message that gave hope to the people that knew they weren't. People like us that, that know from time to time we reach out there and we grab and we leverage and we use that universal sense of ought, right? When people have hurt us. But when it comes to us, sometimes we kind of play it down. We ignore it. Our consciousness just do what we want to do anyway. But for the, for the people who were aware of the fact that they weren't good, this was a good news of great joy for all people. Now, in February of 2018... 
February of 2018, we saw a great example of what this must have looked like, maybe, um, from a God uh, perspective, uh, a little microcosm at least. And um, on February 21st, uh, Billy Graham passed away. And um, on March the 2nd, his funeral was scheduled in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they only invited 1,000 people to the memorial service. And every one of those people who were invited got to bring one person with them. There was, there was room for 2,000 people. And it was intriguing to hear the stories um, come out from pastors and, and dignitaries from, from all over the world who were invited to be a part of this service, this memorial service, the celebration of life. And some, so some of you know Pastor um, Andy Stanley. He's the son of Charles Stanley and pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta. And he was invited, and I heard him talking about it recently, and this is what he said. He said, it was so amazing. There's these dignitaries and there's these famous journalists that are everywhere that you look. There are people you either know who they were or you're like, okay, I've seen them on television, you know, so I know that face. I know that's, I know that's somebody. Important people from all over the world, heads of state. I mean, it was incredible. A thousand people invited that can only bring one person. And the best part of this was, this is what Andy says, um, these were mostly people who were big shots somewhere. They were used to traveling with motorcades and with tricked out Escalades with their people. And they get out with their sunglasses and, you know, they've, they've got their, you know, they're, they're normally, in a normal situation, they've got their people, they've got their security. And the beauty of this day was you couldn't bring your people. You could bring one person. That's it. And so we showed up everybody that got the invite and, and their one guest at a distribution center. It was 20 minutes away from where the ceremony was going to be. And everybody has to go to this kind of warehouse, um, this warehouse area, and they just stand there uh, for about an hour and 15 minutes while we waited for buses to come and pick us up. So you have all these important people and, and they can't be important because they're surrounded by other important people, right? And suddenly nobody's important and they put us in lines and you have to wait in line and we all got herded onto these buses. Uh, everybody had to go to the back of the bus and fill up every single seat from the back to the front. These, these are people that probably hadn't ridden a bus since they were in elementary school. Now they're all sitting in buses. And next Andy says, we drive for about 20 minutes. We get out and it is freezing cold. This is March um, 2nd in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, it's a beautiful sunny day to the locals, but freezing cold. Um, and, and so the service is in a big tent. You'll see a picture of it here, um, you know, with, oh, maybe not, <laughs> without any sides. Um, so you can get under the tent um, and you're super freezing, or you can stand out in the sun where you're, where you're you know, you're just freezing. And so we're miserable for an hour and 15 minutes before this thing even starts. So listen to this. I like it when pastors share with sincerity, right? He says, I'm telling you, I was so enjoying this part as I looked at all these famous people and they couldn't be famous because they weren't, uh, there weren't any people for them to be famous for. Everywhere they look, there were people more famous than them and more important than them. And we all just kind of milled around waiting for the ceremony to start. Nobody 
nobody was anybody special that day. I mean, you may be a big shot in some circle that you work in, and they may be a big shot in some television station, but hey, you're not Billy Graham, right? The playing field was leveled that day. And again, you may have a big ministry, but hey, Billy Graham's life accomplishments are amazing. I had a picture I wanted to show you talking, you know, talking about a big church. You'll have to just Google it uh, to, to, to see it. But Billy Graham... He preached in Seoul, South Korea in 1973, and 1.1 million people attended. They just show up. Over a million people showed up. Okay, so you you may be a big deal, but your funeral isn't going to be on Fox News and CNN and and C-SPAN, okay? You may may be a big deal, but your body is not going to lie in the U.S. Capitol for people to line up around the blocks, to come and see. You know, some people um, there were better known than others, and some people were more famous maybe than others. Um, some people have, you know, more followers than others, but on that day, they all felt short of the earthly glory of Billy Graham. <laughs> kind of incredible to think about, right? And, and, but perhaps the most amazing part of that dynamic was Andy Stanley, this is what he says, you could tell who was uncomfortable. They, they didn't like it. They were, they were used to being special and they weren't special on that day. Billy, Billy leveled the playing field. Peter, the fisherman that eventually became one of Jesus' followers, was a good man. He was a very good man. He was a really good man. He was a businessman. He was a family man. And he had a good reputation in the community. He had brothers. And, and Luke, who thoroughly investigated all this stuff, tells us that one day Jesus was in the community and he was teaching and he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So this is, this is what we know probably more commonly as a Sea of Galilee. And I can't spend much time on this, but this is, this is an amazing phrase here. I love it. It says they were listening to the word of God. This is a big deal. When we see that phrase in scripture, sometimes we don't think about it. We think the Bible. Um, but, but this is way, way, way before there was a Bible, right? And, and he wasn't teaching the law of the prophets, but after the resurrection, the people closest to Jesus, they realized, oh my goodness, what we're listening to him teach right now, we're hearing the words of God. Oh my goodness, this afternoon when when he told that story, I thought it was just a rabbi telling the cool story, but we were hearing the word. (laughs) And so Luke recognized after the resurrection, when Jesus taught, these people had the amazing, awesome opportunity. They were hearing not the Bible being taught. There is no Bible yet, not the law of the prophets. That's kind of a lead up or the backstory. They were hearing, it says, they were listening to the word of God. They were hearing the very words of God. It's just amazing. And so he saw, Jesus looked around and he saw at the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So the way this works, you fish all night and when the water's cool, the fish come back up to the surface. You can uh, then fish with the net. Um, When the sun comes up, the water heats up and the fish go down deeper. And so they fish all night and they come in after fishing and then they let out their nets. They lay out their nets to dry the nets. They get all the, the, the seaweed and the soda cans out of their nets, right? And, and then they roll the nets back up. Um, they stash them away then, and, and they sleep for most of the morning. That was their routine. And then they do it all again the next night. So these guys have been up all night. They're cleaning and they're drying their nets. And Peter has one of his nets clean and dry. It's rolled up by his boat. And Jesus says to him, hey, 
let's push out for a little bit, right? I'd like to get away from the shore. I'd like to see people more and, and, and uh, it won't crowd so much, you know, when they gather. So he got into one of the boats, it says, the one belonging to Simon or Peter. Uh, and he says, let's put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So there's Peter sitting there in the boat. He's a, he's a captive audience, right? He can't leave early. He can't slip out for lunch. You know, he's just, he's, he's stuck on the boat. He's sitting there and Jesus is teaching amazing. I mean, you know, you're listening to the word of God, right? And, and then Jesus finishes his sermon. Peter gets ready to kind of row back over to the shore uh, for Jesus to get out. And Jesus says, Peter, take me fishing. And I don't know what Peter thought. I mean, he probably thought, uh, Jesus, we already did that. We didn't catch anything when you're supposed to fish. So this is going to be a complete waste of time. Might have gone through his head, right? He, maybe he thought, you know, we've never taken the rabbi fishing. So maybe I'll have some good luck. Who knows? Who knows what he's thinking? But it's, it's rabbi, good message. He's a good guy. And then he says this, and we don't know what's behind this phrase, but it's pretty powerful. powerful. He says, it's just, well, Jesus, you know, we've been fishing all night. And we haven't caught anything. But since it's you, is what it says in the scripture. And since we're kind of out here, let's give it a try. And so apparently, don't forget this part. Uh, Jesus and Peter now roll out a little ways and they unfurl those nets and drop them down and they start catching fish. Remember the story? And they catch fish and they catch fish and they keep on catching fish. <laughs> and they catch so many fish, it almost sinks the boat. And somewhere within the process, Peter looks up at this rabbi from Nazareth and he realized something is going on. He comes to this realization, this epiphany, if you want to say that. And suddenly he's overwhelmed with self-awareness. Suddenly Peter begins to see himself in a way that he had not seen himself before. And suddenly he's not okay with what he sees in himself. And, and he's, you know, being, here's, here's a person, you know, kind of above average in the community and being the above average brother to James and John, suddenly that just didn't matter. Suddenly, in, in this moment with Jesus in the boat and with all these fish, I mean, he, he's not going to have to fish for days and days. And this is happening. He's ashamed. And he lets go of the net. And Luke, who probably got this story straight from Peter, said, when Simon Peter saw this, when he saw what was happening, suddenly, and some of you can relate to this, suddenly the fish and the fishing and the fishing business and the crowd on the shore that was all watching, all of a sudden that becomes inconsequential because his world was way out of balance. And Peter, at this moment, was not okay with Peter. Listen to what happened. Luke, Luke says that Peter let go of the net. He drops down on his knees in the boat. He falls at Jesus' knees and he says, what does he say? go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. To which we say, hey, Peter, get up. You know, you haven't done anything wrong. I mean, in fact, not only have you not done anything wrong, you did something right. You took Jesus fishing. I mean, you, you took Jesus fishing when it was in your mind as a fisherman, as a professional fisherman, a waste of time. Your nets were already dried. I mean, you did the right thing. To which Peter would have said, no, 
I didn't say that I sinned. I'm not here to confess sin. I'm just telling you, in the presence of this person, I suddenly became aware of the fact that I am a sinful man. I am not okay. And I just became more aware of that than ever of how not okay I really am. And he said this, Jesus, I need you to go away so that I can feel good about myself. This is what he meant when he said, go away from me, Lord. You know, what he meant was, I was fine with me. I was fine with Peter until you showed up. But then listen to how Jesus responds. I love this. Jesus just smiles and he says to Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He could have said, you know, it's true. (laughs) You're a sinful man. And further on down the road, you're going to deny that you ever even met me. You're going to deny the events of this day. And I know that because you know, I know, I, I, I know that because you're a sinful man. That's, that's why I've come. That's why I've come. That's why I'm here to level the playing field. Because in the kingdoms of this world, it's all about power and prominence and prestige. But I've got good news, Peter. Good news. I've got real good news. It's a new kingdom with a new kind of king. I'm bringing a new kingdom and I'm a new kind of king. And Peter, I'm gonna go away, but I'm taking you with me and together we will introduce the world to the kingdom of God. There's a new thing that's coming. Luke says at that point, they pulled their boats up on shore and they left, he left everything and he followed him. And they left their mark on Western civilization and the, the journey begins the moment that Peter recognizes I'm good but I'm not that good. <laughs> and in your presence, I, I, I'm not just not good. I should not even be in your presence. And Jesus sends him a message and a signal and sends you a message and a signal. And he says, I know, now follow me. So don't worry about that. I've got all of this covered. You're good. Let's do something. Let's go. Let's go and do something significant together. See, what makes the good news so good on your notes, what makes the good news so good is that we aren't so good. (laughs) But he is. He is good. We fall short. We fall short of our own expectations. We fall short of other people's expectations. And we know, we know, we know that we fall short of that kind of elusive sense of ought. In fact, it's worse than falling short. We hold other people accountable, you know, to what they ought to do. And then we give ourselves an out. That's our flesh. That's our normal response. What do you call that? And, you know, we, we hold other people accountable to this, this sense of ought. You ought to. But then at the same time, we decide that when we mess up, there's an excuse, right? There's an excuse to be made. There's a good reason for it. There's a good reason for it, quote. And suddenly Jesus shows up and all the excuses burn away. They just burn away and we realize what we're really like and who we really are. And he just smiles then when we come to that realization and he says, that's why I came. That's why I'm here. And let's be honest, our falling short, it's not always an accident, is it? You know, sometimes we fall short on purpose. You know, we call it a mistake in our culture. You know, she, she made a mistake. Uh, well, she did it four times. Is that, is that a mistake? You know, I mean, is there such a thing as a premeditated mistake, right? You plan it out and then you make it. That's not a mistake. We call it a mistake sometimes. That's not a mistake. That's sin. 
when you hurt another person on purpose and then you do it again and then you plan it and you scheme and you hurt another person or you, or you hurt a company or you hurt somebody you love either by accident or on purpose, that's not a mistake. As a mistake is when you're doing math, right? Uh, a mistake is when you push the wrong button on the cell phone and call somebody that you didn't mean to. That's a mistake. So, you know, let's just be honest. But then suddenly the playing field is level and suddenly the good news gets even gooder, <laughs> Right? Now, now this is incredible. Paul shows up in the pages of history as someone who claimed to be like one of the best people who ever lived, right? If you, you listen to him, I mean, when it comes to righteousness, you know, when it comes to keeping the law of Moses, when it comes to keeping God happy, I am pretty much the best, right? I don't know any other way to say it. I'm the best. I'm like the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm like the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, I can out Pharisee all the Pharisees. And I'm so good when I get to the temple, they're just happy to see me there. I'm so good. I mean, I'm the law keeper. I'm a meticulous law keeper. That's who people knew Paul as. And so, and then Paul meets Jesus. Paul meets Jesus. And do you know what label he gave himself after he met Jesus? Jesus I am the chief of sinners. This man that was the best of the best, he said, I am the chief of sinners. Okay. Wait, 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 what? You're like the best person that ever lived and now you're the chief of sinners. Now you're the worst of the worst. How can you go from being the best of the best to the worst of the worst? And Paul would say, because I encountered God in a body, because I encountered the resurrected savior. And like Peter, there was just a sense of, he had this sense of, please just go away. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus would say to Paul, what Jesus said to Peter, I know, Paul, I, I know, but guess what? Follow me. Follow me. I've got a purpose and a plan and a destiny for you that's bigger and better than you can think of or imagine, and we will change the world together, and together we will introduce the kingdom of God to earth. Here's, here's what he wrote. You've heard these words before. He's talking about himself and he's not, believe me, he's not wagging his finger at anybody when he writes this. There, there is a rescue, right? And this is what he says, for all have sinned and all fall short, playing field leveled, right? We don't just fall short of our personal ambitions and our personal standards. We fall short of others and we fall short of that nagging sense of that ought to, that we feel accountable to and we hold others accountable to. This is the way he says it. We all fall short of the glory of God. The reason Peter fell at Jesus' knees was suddenly a little bit of glory leaked out, right? The reason the apostle Paul finds himself flat on his face and scrambling for words, trying to figure out what to say, blinded, he, it's because a little bit of glory reached out. He's blinded by that little bit of glory, <laughs> right? And, and the God that we say that we believe in and the God that we say we serve and God's son who came to earth to pay for our sin was a God of glory. And in the midst of that glory and in the light of that glory, everybody falls on their knees and the playing field is just leveled. And that's part of the good news because you cannot get to where you need to be until you acknowledge where you are today. And don't forget this. In, in these moments when people were so aware of their failure, those were the moments 
when Jesus leans in and says, now, come on, follow me. Follow me and we will leave our mark on the world. That's, that's, that's when he equips you and calls you and fills you up and stirs you up and gives you the gifting and, the, and he equips you. And so, so far, we're, we're, we're kind of on the bad side of the good news, right? But listen to what he says next. For all of sin and false short of the glory of God. Here's the part that maybe you didn't memorize in Sunday school, or maybe you didn't hear before. And it, it says, and all, the same all, all fall short, all fall, same all are justified. Justified just means made right, that we were made right, but we're not made right by doing right. And we're not made right by promising to do right either. <laughs> That's the problem with promising and committing. Promising to do better next time doesn't do anything about the last time, right? And so, you know, if I promise I will not break another window in your house, that doesn't do anything to pay for or fix the one that I already broke, right? So when you make someone a promise not to do something again, it doesn't do anything for the last time. I've, I've learned that lesson. Anybody else? <laughs> and so this is why you need more than just a second chance. And this is why you need more than a commitment. This is why the playing field is level. So listen how he finishes this up. Freely, he says. Freely. This is the differentiator, if that's a word, (laughs) between Christianity and everything else. Freely by his grace. means you don't have to earn it. Freely by his grace through the redemption or the buying back or the paying back that came by Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus was good news of great joy for all people. And because, you know, here's the thing. We all share something in common. We all fall short, but we also all have been invited to embrace the same solution to our falling short. It's found in Jesus. Bob, you can come up as we get ready to close. Uh, A favorite moment at the Billy Graham memorial service is when his daughter, Ruth, spoke for me. If you watch the service, maybe some of you guys will remember, um, Billy and Ruth, they have uh, five kids. Their middle child was also named Ruth. And all the kids spoke, and it was wonderful and great. And then Ruth gets up, and Ruth is kind of the, I don't know, the hippie of the, the, the five Graham kids, which is kind of a strange thing to say. And if I ever meet her, I guess I'll probably need to apologize. But you sort of get that sense. And here's what she said. You can find this all over the internet. Um, there was a lot of people that really resonated with what Ruth said. She said, I have learned this week, as never before, that everybody has a Billy Graham story and how I have my own. So I'm gonna share it with you. And 21, after 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I I floundered. I did wrong. The rug was pulled out from underneath me. 
My family thought it would be a good idea if I moved far away and got a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a really good church. And the pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they're almost grown and they don't know. They couldn't tell me what to do. I mean, I know what's best for my life. My mother, she called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. And they said, honey, why don't you slow this down? Why don't you wait? You know, get to know this man. I thought, well, they had never been single and they, they've never been a single parent and they've never been divorced. What do they, what do they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married this man on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled because I was afraid of him. And now, what was I going to do? I wanted to talk to my father. I wanted to talk to my mother. It was a two-day drive to their home and questions were swirling in my mind. What was I gonna say to my daddy? What was I gonna say to my mother? What was I gonna say to my children? I had been such a failure. And what were they gonna say to me? We're tired fooling with you. We told you not to do this. We're embarrassed by you. Then she said this, She said, let me tell you, women will understand. You don't want to embarrass your father. And you really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. She continued, many of you know, we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway. And my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he simply said, welcome home. No shame, no blame, no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like on that day. When we come to God with our sin and our brokenness and our failure and our pain and our hurt, and when we realize who we really are in the light of his glory, God is already watching for us and he says, welcome home. And just as her father, Billy, welcomed her, the invitation is open to all of us this morning. No blame, no condemnation just unconditional love. Amen. Father God, we receive your word to us this morning. You are a good, good father. How thankful am I that, you know, with all that I can look at in my own life, God, that you've leveled the playing field. It isn't anything that I can do isn't anything that I can do to, to, to make myself more worthy. You've already done it all. You've already done it. 
God, you've come for me. And you say to me, and you say to every single person in this room, come and follow me. Welcome home. Let's go. We've got stuff to do. I've got a plan and a purpose for you, so let's stop standing around and let's go and do it. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. You are all good. You're just all good. That's who you are. So as your believers this morning, God, I, I just, I just, I want all of us to come knowing that in our mess, you are the God of peace. You are the Prince of peace that passes all understanding. You can come in the middle of our mess and, and you can give us a, a comfort that we don't even know what it's about, but because you're with us, it's there. I pray that for us this morning. I pray for wisdom as we go through that stuff. I pray that we would make the same choice as Peter, that we would just drop everything in the midst of, of our awareness of who we are and follow you. It's you that makes us whole. It's you that, um, Lord, brings justification. You make all things new. You make all things right. So God, thank you for coming to our rescue. If you're here this morning with nobody looking around with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wanna give you an opportunity too and I don't wanna embarrass you. This is a personal decision between you and God. I just want um, to pray a prayer with you and there's nothing magical about the words. It's just all about following Jesus with your life. And so I wanna pray a prayer this morning for you. If that's you, maybe there's, maybe you're coming this morning and say, well, I've done that before, but I, I, I think I've come to the place where I need to resurrender. And so if that's you this morning with nobody looking around, would you just put your hand up in the air? We wanna agree with you and pray with you this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, you can put them down. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray this together all aloud. Father God, I give you my life. All that I am, I surrender to you. Thank you for welcoming me home. I'm gonna follow you with my life. All that I am, I give to you. Thank you for your freedom that you've given to me, coming to my rescue. Thank you for the cross. I'm gonna give you my life. In your mighty name I pray, amen.